0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Sonia Y. Ramsey, author of Bertha Maxwell-Roddy, a modern-day race woman, and the power of Black leadership. I wonder if you could begin by telling us something about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: I am a historian of US history and African-American history, and I specialize in women's history and education. So my first book was on the history of African American women teachers in Nashville, and it was time for me to start writing my next book. You know, the university publisher parish thing. So I had just taken a new position at the as an assistant as associate professor at UNC Charlotte. That's the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and I was researching for a new topic. So I decided one day to attend the Bertha Maxwell Roddy annual lecture. And I was, as I sat down to the lecture, um, a very distinguished, prestigious woman just walks into the room and the, the sorors of Delta Sigma Theta start stand up, Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And I wondered, I am also a member of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. Um, however, I was not an active member of the sorority at the time. And I wondered what was going on. And then I realized that Dr. Maxwell Roddy was, the pre- was a former president of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And I, re- I was was embarrassed that i forgot who she was but then i start to research her life and i realized that she was the not only the the founding director of the africana studies program that's why they named the lecture after her she also founded the national council for black studies she also was a co-founder of the harvey of the afro-american cultural center which is now the harvey b gantt center a regional arts institution she was one of the first black women to be a principal of a white elementary school in Charlotte during the desegregation crisis, and she also became the president of Delta Sigma Theta. Like I said, she then then I realized with a light bulb moment that that was my, she was my new subject. Um, she represents all the things I wanted to talk about about women's activism after the civil rights movement. How did African American women educators continue with activism after the marches die down? If they had a seat at the table, how did they enact change? And Dr. Maxwell Roddy epitomized that research. And also, I also wanted to look at the role of an activist who didn't have a traditional idea of activism. So, yes, that's how.
2: Could you explain why you describe Dr. Maxwell Roddy as a modern-day race woman?
1: A modern-day race woman was a 19th-century term used by the Black press and African-American leaders to describe Men or women who really dedicated themselves to service to the uplift, as they used to say then, the race, African Americans. They engaged in activism of the time. They engaged in civic work, and the for, the term died down over the years as the term activism kind of merged. But I wanted to describe people like Dr. Maxwell Roddy, who wasn't your idea of a traditional activist. She didn't march in the streets. She didn't, you know, she wasn't. um, Tearing, you know, fighting, fighting the power in public, but she did in private. But I wanted to talk about the people who were at the table, seated at the tables behind the scenes, who did everyday things in their community to help children, help people, and enact change. And I thought I wanted to revive, revitalize that term, modern day race woman, to describe people like Dr. Maxwell Roddy, who has dedicated her professional and civic career to helping African Americans.
2: Tell us about the early life of Bertha Maxwell-Roddy and her supportive household and community in a segregated town.
1: Bertha Maxwell Roddy, her maiden name was Bertha Lyons, grew up in what we would designate on paper now as a dysfunctional home. She grew up as a daughter of a single mother who had her at 15. Um, She was raised by her grandmother because her mother had to work. However, that wasn't the story. Dr. Maxwell Roddy grew up in a home surrounded by love. She was so cherished as a child. Um, Her father's family loved her, her. Her grandmother loved her. Now, her grandmother could not read, but she wanted uh, her to have an education. So she um, really pushed her to go to school. Um, she lived in a home which um, behind the house of a very wealthy dentist, Dr. Lunny. And the home, actually, her home, actually, had an indoor toilet, which was toilet and not an outhouse, which was unusual. And so they actually had a lot of African-American dignitaries stay at her home because they could have indoor toilet, like married Church Terrell. So she got to interact with sort of the stars of the day, even though she was the daughter of a, um, a woman who worked in domestic work, you know, things like that. Um, so what I love to talk about with Dr. Roddy is that she transcends class boundaries her life because she is interacting with the students in nearby Seneca Institute who pick her up to go get candy. So she sees college students. She's getting exposure to national figures of the day. And she's also um, learning the wisdom from people who don't have educational access like her grandmother. She is um, a person who... Also takes this love from her childhood and also her background and carries it with her where she is also she's able to, to interact with people from all different social levels and she 's not intimidated by anybody and so that that although we think of small towns that really incurred, it really gave her the strength and imbued in her this um confidence to succeed later
2: so. now during her childhood she became um engaged in working as a domestic for a white household. And then she was uh, a local chapter of the Southern Negro Youth Congress. Tell us something about the life experiences she gained from that.
1: Even though she grew up in a very small town, she had unique life experiences where as a child it was very common. She had to work as domestic work to help make ends meet. Her family was not wealthy. So she was able to work for this white, white lady. It's kind of a helper. She was nine, 10, 11. But during that time, the lady was very nice and she taught her how to set tables. She taught her all these kind of social graces. She wouldn't have the opportunity to learn in other, um, other settings because they were not wealthy. She also learned how to stay stand up for herself at an early age when the woman of the house wanted her to call her son Master Billy. She said, no, because she was only a few years older than him. She's like, I'm not calling him that. And um, she was able to do that. Dr. Roddy has a a very much of a likability factor and that she was able to kind of transverse some of these rules of segregation um, and able to do that with people not um, becoming enraged by her at all times, sometimes maybe not all times. Um, She takes that spirit with her um as her job but she also carries her with her when she becomes president as a teenager of this of the um her chapter local chapter of the southern negro youth congress which was a major civil rights organization at the time that was trying to push for union rights and early voting rights and she was able to travel um with one of the teachers took her on the trip to see um W.E.B. Du Bois speak at their annual convention. And to hear the words of the great Du Bois, the great philosopher, um, one of the icons of African-American history and U.S. history, um, was groundbreaking for her. She was able to see that I, that she and her life could en- engage in activism and how to keep not to accept the status quo. So she grows up, even though she's in a very, very tiny, tiny town, um, getting all these different influences that would shape her later on in life. So,
2: after working in D.C., she returned to Charlotte to attend the Johnson C. Smith University. And in 1952, she married. Um, to help her with bills and tuition, she started working for a white dentist. Tell us about these first and only experiences that she had.
1: Another unique aspect about Dr. Roddy's life is that she represents the thousands of untold people who are first or only, but they're not represented by the NAACP or major civil rights organizations. They're doing this on their own because they just need to. And so she is recently married. She's a college um, student. She has to pay her way through college. Her parents, grandmother could not afford for her to pay, go to college. So she's on her own paying for that and, and trying to have a household. So her husband worked as an elevator operator um, in this office building. And he interacted with this dentist taking him up and down to his floor. And he asked, Hey, do you have any jobs available? And they said yes. So Dr. Roddy becomes, um, and Maxwell at the time becomes um, the first black person to work in this dentist office. And Dr. Parker was nice and friendly. She did, she got, ran errands for him, she filed things for him, etc. Um, she even did the X-rays sometimes. Um, but he, she would go to get lunch. And one time she had to, she was, she enjoyed working for Dr. Parker, um, and because he treated her with respect and dignity. But at one time she was not afraid to stand up and for her what she thought she believed in. Um, When a local civil rights activist, Reginald Hawkins, was fighting to desegregate the airport restaurant um, in UMC in, in Charlotte, um, Dr. Harker complained about it. And she she told him, how dare you complain about that? We should have a right to eat where we want. You know, I go get your lunch every day at the at the hot dog stand in this restaurant and that restaurant. I can't even eat with you. You all go without me because I can't sit with you. How do you think that makes me feel? And I think that really awakened Dr. Parker to to things he had not even thought about, so I think he and also he did not chastise her or fire her on the spot for kind of yelling at him a bit. He actually embraced her and our, her authenticity, um, and so interesting. He actually becomes very friends. One day she came into his office crying. He's like, "Oh my God, are you okay? Are you pregnant?" She said, "No, I can't pay my tuition." And he just wrote, he said all, and he wrote a check to help pay her tuition. So she's able to form these unique relationships that. In the South, they aren't talked about as much because like they don't defy, they defy our thoughts of what should happen. Um, she also became a first continuously throughout her life. Um, Another aspect when she was young is that she worked at um, the bus station in Charlotte and they had segregated. They had the black side and the white side and she worked on the black side. It was so crowded around the holidays one day that they called her, snuck her in to work on the white side and she was underneath the fountain um, desk trying to raise her arm, stick her head down and raise her arm up there with the drinks. And the manager of the soda fountain said, hey, Bertha, stand up, just stand up. If you're going to do it, do it right and stand up. And although he was talking about handing out drinks, she realized that if you're going to do something like that, just stand up. Don't be afraid. And so she takes that with her when she becomes the first Black person to attend UNC Greensboro and and get a master's in educational administration, the first Black person to be a principal at all-white Albemarle Elementary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What's so important about her being a first, is not just that sizable achievement, it's because her major... Thrust of activism has been to be able to keep that door open, to be able to help students, be able to help other people come through that door, so they won't the she won't be the only first, she won't be the the last one, and that is the role of first, mainly to keep that door open, and that is what she did.
2: Could you discuss why Maxwell Riding decided to join the Gamma Lambda chapter of Delta Sigma Theta sorority? And the significance of Black Greek letter sororities?
1: First, African American sororities have played a significant role as is public service within African-American life. Um, they aren't discussed much because they're quite private, but I wanted my book to try to talk about more of the things within the sorority to give more people understanding of what it's like to be in an African-American sorority and to come from an initiate as a beginning when you join the sorority to rise to be the president in the sorority, which is a sizable feat. Um, so African-American Delta sororities are the main service engines of African-American life um, aside from churches. Um, and so Delta Sigma Theta, if you aren't familiar with it, is uh, has about 300,000 members and is um, one of the major leading civil Black women civil rights organizations in the country. So, and it's public service organizations rather in the country, just to give you a background. So Dr. Maxwell Roddy one day met, when she was a little girl, Mary McLeod Bethune, who came to her church because and she got to pin a pin a rose on her, cassage, a cassage on her. And just to be around the great Mary McLeod Bethune, civil rights activist, friend of Eleanor Roosevelt, was so groundbreaking for her that it, she remembered it the rest of her life. So Dr. Um, Mary, uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, rather, was a member of Delta Sigma Theta, and that helped shape why Dr. Roddy wanted to join. Um, and also, um, she wanted to be in the community and do service and fellowship and things like that. So she joins um, Gamma Lambda, a chapter which is part of larger chapters across the nation and international of Delta Sigma Theta. Um, and eventually she becomes, um, she rises up to become the national president. So this book is one of the first um, scholarly looks at that that, tra- that transition. And you may think of sororities as frivolous or. Um, who cares? But for African-Americans, they're not frivolous. It's the way we do our service. And so looking at that also looks at the role of political action within African-American women's lives. The looks And the way that African-American sororities serve as leadership incubators for African-American women who have few to little opportunities to get leadership training in other places. Thanks.
2: She starts out as a teacher in 1954. Who were some of her mentors?
1: Yes. So Dr. Roddy graduates from college in 1954, the pivotal year of the Brown versus Board of Education. However, in reality, the way things are playing out, it was the status quo. It not have impacted um, the actual school system. So she had to get a job in the segregated schools. And when she goes for her interview in the segregated schools, of, of um, it was a group of principal black principals and teachers. She has a reverent sense of humor. And so they're asked, what do you want to do after you graduate, she said, "Get a job." She thought she was funny. They didn't like her joke. They thought it was irreverent, and so they put on um, a little mark by her by her application there. Um, and so she thought it was going to keep her from getting a job. But she had done student teaching under this principal, Janie Hemphill, at Alabama. I'm sorry, at First Ward Elementary School. In, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Alexander Street Elementary School and for in the First Ward. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, Alexander Street was a large segregated school that ran on split sessions they had so many students students had to come at different times they lacked resources and what she learned from Jane Help Hill was that how to navigate between um of segregation, um, racist segregated um, system, how she navigated to get more resources for her students, how she negotiated to get resources for her students. She couldn't just go demand them. This was the era of segregation. Yet she couldn't have her students do without. So think of the pressure these principals faced on how to navigate those things. And one thing she learned from Dr. Hemphill also is that you don't, um, you must know your students. So Dr. Hempto had her teacher, young teachers go out to the neighborhoods and visit the homes of their students. And so she learned how her students lived. She learned if her students didn't have proper bedding to sleep in. So she understood why they were tired in class. So she understood the background of her students so she could better relate to her students and form a connection with the parents of her students. Um, She also um, learned new techniques. There were um, new teaching techniques and she embraced these new techniques. And some of the older teachers thought that, oh, we don't we don't like this teaching in a circle thing. And so they thought they would you know, kind of get back at her by giving her all of the kind of students that were had um, behavior problems, I'll just say that. And she thought that was a norm, and she was very upset until the school psychologist said, why are you getting all these students? And she learned she had, she'd kind of been um, pranked. So she learned next year to demand the, the proper students that she should have. So she She's learning how to navigate with older teachers. She's learning how mentoring um, administrative skills from Dr. Hemphill. And that she would take those within where she forms her own administrative style, where she's not as authoritative as some of the principles that she um, came under as a teacher. But she also knows how to demand what she needs when she needs to.
2: Tell us about Shirley and how she mentored her and others.
1: So, in one of those visits, she saw the home of Shirley Harris. It was a young girl who lived with about six, six brothers and sisters in a very small home, and they had very little resources. And one day, Shirley said, "Can I come home with you one day?" And she said, "Well, okay, sure. Why not? I, you know, come home and smell in that cup." And they did that back then. They would not do that these days. It'd be too many rules and regulations. But she visits with Shirley. But Shirley never goes home. She just keeps coming back every weekend. to finally, she just stayed there. Her mother thought it was okay. And her fa- husband was like, well, if we're eating, she's gonna eat too, so why not? So she kind of informally adopted Shirley and it became interesting. So, so that's um, a unique aspect of her really um, doing something for her students, yes. Shirley ends up becoming Sorry about that. Shirley ends up becoming an educator and attends Johnson C. Smith, like Dr. Roddy, too. It's cute.
2: How did she and other faculty help children during this time?
1: And why did she start the Charlotte Teachers' Corps? Okay. So, Dr. Roddy noticed that there was no access to kindergarten for poor children in Charlotte. They only had paid kindergarten. Oh, can we stop for a second? Or you have to keep going. I'm sorry. Dr. Roddy noticed there was no access to kindergarten for poor children. It was only paid kindergarten for black children. And she thought that they needed this early childhood education support. And that was really one of the modern teaching educational moves that was going on at the time. So she organized, she's able to organize her fellow teachers to work without pay for an entire summer, summer to help form a free kindergarten for these children. And so they did this. They took them on field trips. They did early reading practices and techniques. They had their own special curriculum. They she raised money for their lunches for the students. So out of this aspect, it became an early predecessor for Head Start. Head Start comes right after that. And really local Charlotte's local Head Start patterns itself after this program. So one thing about Dr. Roddy, you can see that she, when she sees a need in the community, she works to try to address that need. And that is how she and other public school teachers at that time had to do. Their their jobs weren't just a nine to five in the classroom. They had to do many things outside of the classroom to support their communities you know, and support the children in their communities. That felt... That became donating clothes or raising money or visiting families to support them, whatever they needed to do to try to help children.
2: What were some of the challenges that um, she faced and other Black teachers faced working in the CMS system during the early years of the desegregation process in Charlotte?
1: Well, some of the issue was, again, the... There was an ongoing battle or going on court cases trying to desegregate the schools. In North Carolina, they had what's called the Pearsall Plan where they integrated the schools by by year. So really not integrating at all. So what you, Dr. Roddy sees as the people within the segregated schools fighting for resources with those schools, but also fighting for desegregation. So Dr. Roddy was Maxwell at Maxwell the time, was right in the middle of this, where she becomes one of the first Black women to become a reading specialist. And she was able to kind of navigate the segregation lines where they sent her to be a reading specialist at white school. So she got to see how many Resources the white schools had, and since she also saw um, that children were children as well, too. Um, Another things that she was able to see um, as a Reason Special, she saw the larger aspect of the whole school system and how they navigate that, and she was able to meet some of the administrators who wouldn't have it in other cases. Um, other things um, happening with that, Charlotte becomes a center because of its court case for, um, um, busing for desegregation. And so she becomes a part of that story because as principal, as she becomes principal of Albemarle elementary school, uh, white elementary school in Charlotte, they were, um, They were engaging in busing and they were looking at how she managed that school to see if they should be doing more busing. So she had a lot of pressure on her. And even prior to that, when she was principal of Morgan Elementary School, a segregated school, they told her they were closing her school. And so she had to fight um, to get protect her teachers because. As desegregation, one of the um, unfortunate sides of desegregation is that um, the aspect of that was the closing of black schools. And so they closed so many black schools that black teachers lost their jobs, and especially black black principals lost their jobs. So she was fighting to keep her teachers and bring them to her new school so they wouldn't lose their jobs. So she had a lot of pressure beyond the, that of the normal principal would have um, and during desegregation, um, And she also went when she was at Morgan to the schools where she knew her students were going to be bused. And one school was fine, one white school, and the other school, he was very um, snippy and, and hesitant. And she went to the principal, um, the superintendent and said, you better get him in check. Because uh, my students are not going to be treated like this. And she had formed these alliances prior to that when she was um, attending um, um, UNC Greensboro. And she kind of got as the only black person in the master's program. And um, she she became noticed by the superintendents of schools and other uh, area um education leaders are there. So she, um, again, uses that ability from her childhood where she's able to interact with all kinds of people on kind of the same level. They, they become they friends with her. She becomes friends with this group of the educational elite, but also working with her students as well. So and that's, that's how she would continue that kind of balance throughout. Yes. In
2: 1964, she decided to go to graduate school. How did she balance working her family and attending graduate school?
1: Yes. Yes. I had mentioned that previously again. So she decides to go to UNC Greensboro because you were able to get higher salaries as African-Americans if you were able to, and other teachers as well, if you can get higher education. So she attends in the summers and she's just had a toddler, her toddler little girl, and she has Shirley. So she has kids. So she's managing all this. Um, and her husband is so not supportive, but she really at that time had to do most of the parenting. And so there she is trying to go to UNC Greensboro and the dorms would not accept, um, people with children and probably not African-American, so she didn't have a place to stay. And one of the housekeepers at the um, housekeepers at the um, school said, hey, you want to come stay with me? And so that's where she stayed with in the summer. So she stayed with the housekeepers at the, during going to classes. So the students would speak to her in class, but would not speak to her when they saw her on campus in public. Um, so she had to deal with that. And one day, this older gentleman, um, she knew he was probably a teacher, um, just she starts talking to her and talking to her about desegregation. And she's giving her her views, giving him her views. And um, she didn't know that. And some other who he was. And the, another student said, you know, that's the dean of education, college of education. She's like, really? OK. And so they actually become um well, friends, not friends, you know, cordial with each other. And so she knows him. So that is why he, he also knows the edu- educational league. She becomes kind of on their radar, as someone to watch out, someone to keep in mind for. So when she graduates, they really want her to be a principal. But she actually did not want to be a principal. She just wanted to kind of go to school. And um, that's one thing about Dr. Maxwell Roddy. She's a natural leader, but inside or in herself, she's a reluctant leader, I'll say. She just never goes like one of those determined, go get her people to be the leader. She always has leadership thrust upon her in a way, um, a lot of ways. So it's interesting. That was another case because they kind of pushed her. One of I do we, do we want to have your tuition paid for? You're going to have to take this principal job. She's like, okay. So that's how she engaged on her trek to become a principal. It's interesting. Um, so she's that's an interesting um, story. Another interesting story is when she was at school, um, one of the one of the teachers that was teaching about management techniques that she really carries throughout her life um, spoke. Um, he was um, South South Asian, and other other students could understand. To understand, and um, but she could because she had her different accents from living in South Carolina and then people from the Gullah Islands and different things. She understood it fine, and she got an A. So that was also made her stand out as well. So um, she was a unique there. Yes. As
2: the first black person to get a degree in educational administration at UNC Greensboro, what were some of her successes, and what were some of her challenges? Did that really open doors for her?
1: Yes. As I spoke about, it did open doors because not just because of the degree, because of the relationships and connections she made with some of her fellow students, her teachers and Dr. Um, Howell, the dean of education. Um, he took her name and took it to the superintendent of Charlotte schools and said, you should make her a principal. She has leadership abilities. So what she learns is that she is she excelled academically there, but she also was able to form these connections there that um, um, Blacks usually didn't have the opportunity to do because they weren't allowed to be in, in those spaces. They weren't given the granted permission to be in those spaces. The schools have just recently integrated during this time. So she was able to get Um, that kind of support from these high-level officials that she was able to go in to be the principal of a white school that she had they had her back in certain ways Um, and but she also knew that she had to do certain things to perform and so 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 that was interesting there then it did open doors Um, but also she opened her own doors too because of her skills and her um, leadership abilities so
0: slash nbn50 to get
2: 50% off. When uh, Maxwell Roddy had this management style, she was a black woman in a white school. How did she interact and manage the students, parents, and teachers?
1: So, and um, Albemarle at the time now is a crowded intersection, a very crowded, busy area. But at the time, it was almost rural and people rode their horses to the school. It was a brand new school, about 500 white students, three or four Black students. And she had some of the Black students. She took to school with her um, in her car. Um, So one thing she knew going in there that she had to be prepared, and one thing about Dr. Maxwell Roddy, as she believes in preparing and organization. So she wanted to bring some of the new teaching and management techniques that she learned in graduate school and as a principal in prior years with her to um, Albemarle. And one of the concepts that would be picked up in Charlotte in later years was the open schools concept where you do team teaching. Um, In the 70s, there were lots of different innovative team um, educational ideas to try to address certain issues of the day. Um, And so she wants to bring these new ideas to school. So she's already the first black woman teacher at the school, uh, principal of the school. So you have parents that are literally shocked. One, because they might not be used to seeing a woman principal, not unless and not a Black principal, not both, and they're kind of shocked. Um, so she had most of her issues with the parents, some of the parents, and um, some issues with teachers. Um, some of the teachers, she had our first mixed um, interracial teaching staff and having them how to interact with each other, having them learn how to interact. She had to set guidelines for them. Um, but some of the issues she had um, with parents, um, she had to just work through. But one thing, the students loved her, and so she she had new things like parents with specialized skills could come share them on Fridays. If you were automatic, if you were automatic auto um, mechanic, you could bring those. If you were a baker, you could help them bake a cake. She wanted to do experiential learning at that time. Um, but one of the things she had to deal with, of course, was discipline issues. And when one of her teachers disciplined a student in the classroom and the parent was upset, he wanted the teacher was African-American and he wanted the teacher automatically fired. And so she's not going to do that, But how she navigated this. And um, it was reported that he had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And so she decides to bring the school board to a meeting at her school. Remember, a school is kind of has a light shined on them because they're looking at this with this whole busing situation going on. And um, so she um, are about to go on. So she had the student, the parent is like, "I'm going to report you to the board." She said, "You don't have to. They'll be right here at the meeting. Come and speak to them directly." And he was too embarrassed to do that because there's really no reason that he wanted that he had to get the teacher fired. So he, he kind of backs down. So she's learning how to navigate things. She's learning how to deal with racism. She's learning how to deal with sexism at the same time and the kind of intersectional, as we his scholars say, kind of focus. Um, but it was hard. It was stressful. Um, the parents weren't always that nice. And, you know, she's trying to do these new techniques and um, bring these all these changes in at the same time where she's getting um, accolades the National Association of Elementary School Principals, eventually wants her to become its president. But she, you know, so she's getting ground in that way professionally, but she's also very stressed. So um, she decides that she does not want to keep doing this. She says, she tells the superintendent of schools, it's like putting diapers on <laughs> If You think about that visual Im- image. And she wants to go in a different direction. So she had had um, one of the um, teachers, one of the um, Educators from UNC Charlotte over the then um, it's called Human the College of Human Development, but now the College of Education came to a workshop, and she had placed one of her um, student teachers were in her school, and she didn't do well. And she told him, "He didn't she's not doing well," and she didn't, you know, she didn't have any qualms about it. And he 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 thought that was truthful. He thought that was good. He just didn't go along to get along. So she he asked her if she wanted to work at UNC Charlotte, and she said, "I don't know." But after after all this time with all this trauma and drama at Albemarle, she takes him up and says, do you still have that job? So she thought she was going to have an easy peasy, less stressful job educating people, educating teachers. But surprise to her, that was not the case. So yes. <laughs> UNC Charlotte,
2: she left K-12 and went into higher education during the Black Campus Movement. Tell us about what you found.
1: Yes. I said it was in the case. She just happened to arrive on UNC Charlotte's campus right in the middle of a black um, campus movement. Um, And so this 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 is a new movement and she becomes central in this movement. And although she didn't know anything about black studies or what it was or anything about it. And so here she is. It's the second full time. Black, woman, um, faculty member, um, at the, black faculty member at the university, had about a smaller university. Interesting about UNC Charlotte, its unique history is founded by a woman. less um, unique. Um, and it's also originated as a school for, um, an after school, after night school for veterans, returning World War II vet, veterans. And Bonnie Cone, the, the um, quintessential Bonnie Cone, was able to turn that night school into a university by net, networking and building and to bring a public university to Charlotte region. Um, And now UNC Charlotte has 30,000 students, the third largest system in the UNC system of schools. So so what an achievement. So she's in this atmosphere of innovation when she comes to UNC Charlotte. It's building, literally buildings, infrastructural building and also building majors, degree programs and different things. So um, now in a year or two before, they, if she comes. Um, they had a major. Black students had a major protest on campus to um, commemorate the Orangeburg Massacre and the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and they lowered the black, the U.S. flag and lowered, and raised the black national flag, red, black and green. So they, they had navigated. Bonnie Cone was navigating with these students to make sure none of them got hurt and different things. And so they were able to list their 10 demands. And out of their 10 demands was the creation of establishment of a Black Studies program. And so they were looking for a director. They asked all the prominent men in that field, they thought, and most of them were men. And they asked other people, but many of them did not want to come to a new university that just opened in 1965. You know, they wanted to go to a prestigious older university. Um, And so they were running out of people. So they turned to Dr. Roddy and said, Dr. Maxwell at that time, would you like to be director? She said, well, she asked if the students Wanted her to be director, she would. And so the students were a little skeptical of her. She's a you know professional educator and a little bit older, and they were full fledged activists, you know. And so um, she, they asked, "Can you do this?" She said, "I don't, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about, but I know how to run this program." So they put their trust in her, and then she, she been they learned to do that, um, and that worked out. So she became the founding director of the Black Studies Program. But first, she had to school, educate herself. On what Black Studies was, and so she um, went to visit um, 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 different Black Studies practitioners and studied with them, and really educated herself. She wanted to get a PhD at University of South Carolina Columbia, but. They didn't have any professors who knew about black studies at the time. There were very many black professors at the time, so she really didn't know what to do with that. So she eventually finds a university for working professors, this kind of innovative school called Union Institute. And she was able to kind of develop her own um, doctoral degree program there, um, and she was able to get several of her faculty members to get their um, doctoral degrees there as too. Again, she's bringing people through the doors, right? So, so she is um, at UNC Charlotte in the Black Studies program, and she's definitely having to create a new paradigm, a new curriculum. Most of the other professors didn't know what that is. So it's one thing to do go through administration battles uh, as an as a administrator, but it's another thing when people don't even know what you're doing. So she had to educate people and try to build a program. So it's very interesting. So.
2: Now tell us how she took Black Studies from the campus to the community.
1: Yes. So an aspect of Black Studies is that you don't just learn all your knowledge, you learn it and take it out to help people in the community. Or what's the point? And she pulls on her history as a teacher in the segregated school system, which also called for teachers to um, engage in service in the community. She just meshes that together. And and think, students Develops an internship program where students go out and do and works at nonprofits. She develops all kind of service programs for her students to do, engage in, which now would be called service learning. Um, but one of the things she noticed in Charlotte is that there was... Um, a urban renewal was wiping out, decimating, destroying the Black neighborhoods in the the name of progress. And also, desegregation was closing Black schools in the name of desegregation. And she thought that Black children would have few cultural landmarks and little knowledge of their history if something wasn't done. So she works with a um, fellow um, colleague of hers named Dr. Mary Harper in the English department. And Mary Harper had this innovative, creative idea to start an African-American cultural center. And so she asked Dr. Roddy to help her and they worked together and they formed this kind of ragtag cultural center, the only cultural center for African-Americans in Charlotte. Um, They navigate the cultural arts world where blacks get limited funding. Um, They navigate the nonprofit world. Um, they're bringing in artists um, and really um, bringing in the different things. They started the center to raise money um, by having a festival. And that was the first kind of Black festival in downtown Charlotte in 1974. And people are like, what's going on? So so she really makes African-Americans a part of the cultural community um, in the center. And eventually over the years, the Afro-American Cultural Center grows and expands, also struggles to get funding and money. They They do a miraculous one-month, million-dollar fundraising campaign, and they move into the Little Rock Church, um, old version of their church. Um, But after that, now that they moved, it was very hard to get money to sustain things. So um, this book also looks at the role of Black cultural centers and how the struggles they face. And in the midst of this, as Charlotte was growing, it touted itself as a, quote, New South City, a city that did not have some of the the horrible racial things of the past and open to business. And eventually, Charlotte becomes the third largest banking center if not, or the second largest banking center in the United States, might be the world. And so all these people are moving to Charlotte from all over the world. And African-Americans are doing what's called reverse migration. They're moving back from the north. The cold northern cities—they're moving back to the south, and Charlotte becomes a kind of beacon, calling them to move to the south, especially middle-class African Americans to work in these new banks and all these things. So, so the the cultural center becomes a kind of um, symbol for all of these changes as people embrace the center as a place of refuge or a place, but also it becomes a center where people of um, that are working the corporate world can interact with each other. So the center has to balance trying to reach that original group of peak cohort that Dr. Roddy wanted, the African-American students who needed a neighborhood, the local people, and with this new influx of migrants coming in from different areas. So that balance is interesting, Tal. And the book is very interesting how to look at how the Cultural Center does that. And eventually in 2009, it reopened as the Harvey B. Gantt Center, named after the Charlotte's first Black mayor, a beautiful structure um, and that's right in the middle of uh, uptown or downtown Charlotte that's um, showing, you know, this open as part of a, oh, a, a multiple arts cluster there. So looking at that trajectory, is very interesting to look at the role of African-Americans in arts. So.
2: Why did she establish the National Council for Black Studies?
1: Yes, so when she was trying to navigate her program to, as we do in academics, she you wants your program to become a department, so it'll have permanent status, but you also want to get certain degrees. She wanted a bachelor's degree instead of just being able to take courses. So that sounds simple, but it's actually very complicated to navigate through those different layers of administration. Um, and so Doing that, she learned how to negotiate. She learned when she had to stand up and just make her point. But some of the programs across the nation were floundering because they didn't have directors with those administrative skills. And so, Dr. Maxwell Roddy represents some of the early founders of Black Studies and eventually Latin American Studies, all these different studies that emerged out of activism, women's studies, um, that activists started, but they didn't necessarily have that um, traditional academic administrative training that Dr. Roddy had. So when she wanted to help um, programs survive, they had to be accredited by the Southern Association of Colleges and Universities. And so that that's a big thing. And if they weren't accredited, your program's really going under. So she knew they had to have be able to get through that. And she wanted to form an association to support Black studies directors and practitioners to support each other. And so she makes a call and um, she has all these people gather to Charlotte and later in different other places. And most of them are kind of former activists, very masculine, hardcore hardcore guys. And she's interesting how she interacts with them because the um, first day they, they, they view her as respect because she had knowledge that they needed to survive. But she also welcome their knowledge. One thing about Dr. Maxwell Roddy is that she's a master leader, educator, but she she saw a young person um, a person that is not a traditional what you think they should be, if they had leadership abilities, she let them lead. She um, did not have these certain things where you have to have this thing or you have to have that thing to lead. If you could lead, you could lead. And so she saw, um, she learned about different theories in African-American studies that she can learn. She learned the kind of academic parts from these young guys, but she also helped tell them how to run their programs. And they call her Sister Bertha. They call her the Queen Mother. She doesn't really like that. Um, it's like that stuffy. But they they really revere her in a lot of ways. But also because she starts the organization, but she steps back from it in a way of negotiating. She lets some of them lead. If you hold the convention at your university, you can be the director, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she kind of gets... um pushed back in the history where she's not known as the founder, but she was the one who called everybody together. It wouldn't be an association uh, council without her. So the National Council of Black Studies is very exciting. It's a, a premier organization of its field, and they were instrumental in getting um, African-American studies as an AP class in high school. And that was one of Dr. Roddy's goals to take Black studies off the college campus into the public schools and different things like that. So so she's happening. So she kind of t- takes a back step from that role after she retired from UNC Charlotte, but she definitely had an integral role in shaping um, the, these um, programs because she was able to help some of these directors keep their programs um, alive and to help them survive. So.
2: Why did she return to Johnson C. Smith and what led her to return?
1: So she is um working at UNC Charlotte and they came a opening for director vice president of administrative affairs at Johnson C Smith her alma mater and she thought I should go back to my alma mater and help them right so she wanted to do that she was the first woman in that position so this book also looks at the idea of intersectionality or kind of different things that affect people's lives and how they intersect with each other, like race, class, and gender. So in this case, where she faced racism and Charlotte, here she is at John C. Smith with dealing with things like sexism, because people weren't used to having a woman in such a high position. Plus, she had brought all these new management techniques that people were unfamiliar with, and she really was used to getting things done and telling people what they needed to do and they weren't quite used to that much fast change. And so she had a hard time there. Um, She had a hard time um, getting the respect that she needed for some of the higher ups. And um, a person, although she's a fighter, if she sees so many brick walls, she looks around and pivots somewhere else. And so she decided, I'll come back to UNC Charlotte, which is interesting because we talk of, often talk about racism before African Americans, women they also have to deal with sexism. And this was a case where um, the race she 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 knew what she knew she knew how to navigate UNC Charlotte a little bit better. So she comes back there, which is she's like you, and you can not go home again. That was her phrase: <laughs> "You can't you can't always go home again." So, <laughs> but yeah, but um, Johnson C. Smith, as her alma mater, would always be dear to her heart. She always will fundraise for them. She did not affect the way she thought about the school. It's just she realized that that the interacting with some of the management there just wasn't working for her. So.
2: Now, you talk about political sisterhood. Can you describe her experiences as a black sorority leader and her partnership with Habitat for Humanities?
1: Yes. So Dr. Roddy blends everywhere. Every time she learns something, she puts it all together. So at Johnson C. Smith, prior to that, she had instituted this um, five year management plan. So she's learning these large scale management plans. She learns things from developing black studies on how to develop a program. She withdraws from her principal days. So within the sorority, um, it's um an avenue where you can be a leadership, be a leader. It's not um, a place just to have tea, fun and have parties. There's an aspect of that. But a lot of it's very serious about the service projects that they do and the community activism that they do. And so she had wanted to change some things within the sorority. And she was facing some blocks there and she decides to run for office, oftentimes to be able to be in the power to enact the change that she wants. And I call it political sisterhood because they are serious when they run these offices, similar to a political campaign, the only thing is different is that if you win or lose, you're still sisters. You know, it's not like today's divisiveness we have. Um, you're still sisters and having to manage that is quite interesting. So she um, is in a region, um, Delta Sigma Theta has seven regions and they grouped them together and their chapters within local chapters on the college level and in the um, um, city level of people who are alumni members. So there's usually two chapters kind of each area. So there's seven regions. So she wanted to run for this new region of the Charlotte had the States of South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia, and, um, and one of the islands in the Caribbean. So she decides to run um, for that office and The people in that chapter had not had a person in major office before, and they really support her. So she actually wasn't in in the inner circle of people in the sorority because they had people from more powerful regions in the South, in the East, a lot there, but she runs for office because she um, networks with people. She shows what, what service projects she's going to do. She campaigns, but at the same time, she really is saying, I, I'm, I'm a I'm not going into leadership on a minute. I'm just doing this to fix things, kind of thing. Um, it's interesting because you really have to work hard to become get office there. And so she able, she's able to rise up to become the national president, which is a major feat. So, in African-American life, when do African-American women ever get an opportunity to tell 300,000 women what to do, um, what service projects are going to do, and they go out and do it. And there are more people that do it than that. So she decided to look at the issue of housing for African-American women. Often, single mothers really had a hard time finding proper housing or were being taken advantage by the subprime mortgage industry. And she wanted to partner with Habitat for Humanity. Um, and Habitat for Humanity was very welcome. So it's the first national Black organization to partner with Habitat for Humanity. So at their opening um, kind of gala, when she's announced as president, they have to announce their agenda, their service agenda, sort of like the... Um for like presidential ca- ca- uh, platforms used to have their platforms and so she announces that they're going to work with Habitat for Humanity and literally build houses. And these ladies in their finery were just really and they did. They went out and built houses. And what was interesting now all of them didn't have building skills. So some of them worked on how to help the people in the houses balance their budgets, those kind of things. But everybody had a role. But what's interesting the when women that were building houses Often the homes were going to single mothers, and they could see these other Black women really having to help help build their house. So there was a nice connection there. And so they built houses, about 40 houses um, during her tenure there, um, 22 houses. And about now it's been over 500 homes, even though, even though, and then she also built homes, and they also built homes in Ghana. So another aspect of keeping the door open Habitat didn't have any black people on their board. And he said, by chance, don't you wanna put this person on your board? Why don't you give this person a job? So she was able to bring people in hiring. To help help integrate or segregate habitat for humanity, so she's always bringing people along with her. Um, she um, eventually meets presidents, it's national presidents. Um, it's one of the most powerful black organizations in the country. Um, she interacts with Bill Clinton um, and other politicians as well. John John Lewis becomes a dear friend. Um, so she is now interacting with presidents, Congress people. But yet she is still the same Bertha, same Bertha, which is very exciting, interesting to see. Um, interesting with entertainers of the day too. Yes, so so she uses her power to have more, to enact more change, enact more service um, to make changes within sorority, and also to try to reach more people with organizations like Habitat for Humanity. So yes, but the other national presidents do similar agendas as well. Um, recently, Marsha, uh, the president right after her was um, Secretary of Housing, Marsha fudge right so they go into other leadership things as well so um most of our african-american women leaders like are members of african-american greek service. not all of them but are members like kamala harris is a member of alpha kappa alpha etc so um leadership incubators so so they still do that um and they still play a role in society and they all do major service work um work like getting people to polls and things like that so they were doing all those kind of things when she was in office as well so
2: What do you want the reader to learn about Bertha maxwell Roddy after finishing your book?
1: Yes, I wanted her to learn um, definitely to reconceptualize our idea of what an activist means. It's not just our envision to expand our idea and look at different types of activism. I want readers to look at people who... Don't fit our conventional boundaries of what you, um, what you, how you should act. So Dr. Roddy helped start a cotillion debutante, Paul, when she was president of the local Delta chapter. But yes, she's hanging around with Black studies activists and fits right in with them as well. I wanted us to get rid of those kind of conceptions we have about people that limit people. I also wanted to be within the sorority to to look at the sorority as a major service organization, but also look at the sorority as a way of um, generating sisterhood and fellowship. Dr. Roddy had a cadre of friends who helped her get elected and they called themselves the Bertha's Girls because people would tease them, here comes the Bertha's Girls, but they braced it with, um, they love that term. And they are still today helping her, although she's 92. Um, they're still around. They're, they're distinguished women and very much in their own right. Um, I wanted to look at that in the way black women support each other Um, with this book. I also want people to look at the ways that uh, urban city city like Charlotte, um, how African-Americans embrace what it means to be New South and make a New South city and make it their own. Um, I also want people to think about the book in so many different aspects of looking at um, what it means to be an administrator. We often talk about African-Americans desegregation as students or the legal aspect, but what is it looking at as an administrator in the, in the desegregation process and also looking at it in academia as well. Um, we can learn a lot of things from Dr. Mar- Max Roddy's leadership. Um, style, her famous phrase, it's better to ask Permission, better as forgiveness than permission, often she would go out on, on a limb and do things and see what happens because they're very innovative and people just didn't understand them um, until they did. So I learned a lot. I still learn a lot of days with Dr. Roddy. Um, and I one thing about Dr. Roddy is I could not even begin to tell other things that she had done. Um, she did many things after her retirement, like working in South Carolina and helping to um, revitalize and help connect the residents of the ancestors of a um, local black plantation. Um, it, and so she's always active. She's never retired. Um, only illness has stopped her. But she's really pushing through through that. And and if she was here right now, she'd take over my interview. That's where she'd take the bikes, right. But Dr. Riley's is amazing person to me, and I think also for us to look at our local superstars in our local areas are. People who are modern-day race women and men right around us. And another thing Dr. Roddy was also great at is forming allies who didn't look like her, but so one of her greatest allies was Dr. Ann Carver a white lady from Appalachia who works for Black Studies and really helps her, becomes her right hand person. And also the way she worked across gender gender lines and the people who would dedicate themselves because they were working for the cause and she was able to help them see that. Um, I think she's a great example of leadership. I think it's a great book for people to read who want to learn about women's leadership, who want to learn about the sorority, even though you don't have to be in a sorority, um, who want to learn, wants to learn about what it meant to be Um, to navigate administration during this heady time of the 70s and 80s. Um, I think it's a great, it covers so many different aspects of urban Southern life as well. And it's also a national story. So I hope people go out and read it.
2: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on?
1: Yes, I I tend to look within before I go without. So I have an aunt who lives in, I am actually, I didn't mention before, my family grew, my mother's family grew up right next to Dr. Mertham Maxwell-Roddy. And although I didn't know her, I think we had, might have people related who are related to her. It's very strange. But uh, that's another story. But my aunt um, worked at this gospel factory for 40 years there. And um, she was one of the first Black women to work in this gospel factory. And she would tell us these stories while I was growing up and I didn't pay any attention. But then I started to realize they're stories. So I wanted to write my projects going to look at Black women skilled workers in the South and how they navigated desegregation. So she had to learn how to manage these major um, machinery and there were a lot of problems. She did very well and actually they she did too well and they didn't want her to make so much production so they kept sabotaging her and how she had to fight through that, how the women The women in the factory supported each other, um, how they had navigated racial incidents, but also sexism things. They always had male managers, no matter what. And so I want to tell that story. I don't think it's been told. And look at the ways they self-educated themselves and looking at different types of education there. So um, the skilled trades also was great. They were opening up the skilled trades and manufacturing at factories to women um, in the late 60s. Um, So but by the time we get to 2000, she goes to work one day and there's a sign on the door saying the factory's closed. It had moved to Mexico. So it's also a story of globalization as well. So um, I'm going to look at that, kind of look at that story. That's my next project.
2: Well, we'll be looking forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.